Let's open our Bibles to the book of Malachi, chapter 1. The book of Malachi, chapter 1. In the first five verses, you're going to have Jehovah's love for His people. And then in verse from verse 6 through chapter 2, verse 9, goes over into the second chapter, the rebuke of the priests. And then from chapter 2, verses 10 through 16, you have the rebuke of the social conditions. And then in the third chapter, the first six verses, verses 1 through 6, you have the announcement of the messenger and the day of the Lord. And then in the last verses of this chapter, well, I shouldn't say the last verses, verses 7 through 15, you have the rebuke for defrauding the Lord when they withheld their tithes. And then the last section of the of the book takes us from chapter 3, verse 16, through all of chapter 4, which is only six verses, and it's the remnant and the concluding prophecy. So you have about six divisions in the book, only you have four chapters, and we'll take them in order. Let's look at verses 1 through 5 in the first chapter, and we're going to see in these first five verses uh, God's love for His people. And, in fact, uh, you'll begin to see that almost immediately. Uh, first of all, Malachi means my messenger or the messenger of Jehovah. That's the meaning of his name. We don't have too much information about Malachi, the prophet. But that's the meaning of his name, and well, it should be, because he's the one that announces in chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I will send my messenger. So he's announcing the messenger of the before to prepare the way for the Lord. Not only to prepare the way for the Lord as Jesus comes on the scene, and we know John the Baptist was that forerunner and messenger of the Lord in, in the first coming of Christ, but he's speaking also of Elijah. In the last chapter, he speaks of Elijah that will come before that great and terrible day of the Lord comes, before the Lord himself comes again. So you really have a kind of a twofold prophecy of the messengers before Christ's coming. One before his first coming, which is John the Baptist, just before his first uh, ministry, not before his first coming, but at his first coming, before Jesus enters his public ministry. John is the forerunner. But then there's Elijah that is to come before Christ comes again in power and great glory. So there's a kind of a twofold announcement of the messengers that will come. We can interpret that by using some things that Jesus speaks of John the Baptist in the Gospels themselves that reveal that John was that messenger to prepare the way for the Lord. And Isaiah also speaks of it, but we won't get into that right now. Let's look at verse 1 of the first chapter. It says, The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. So you just have a short announcement. It doesn't tell where he come from, who his parents were, where he lived, or anything about it. You go back and you read in the book of Amos, it says, Amos of the herdman of Tekoa, and it tells you what he was doing and everything about him. But Malachi, you don't have all that information. Now then, it says in verse 2, he begins his message immediately. He says, and this is speaking the word of God to Israel. He says, I have loved you, saith the Lord. The very first thing that God announces here is his love for Israel. He says, I have loved you, saith the Lord. Yet you say, wherein hast thou loved us? Wherein? In other words, they question God's love. Now we can go back and we can find several passages of Scripture that reveal to us 
how God loved Israel of old. In fact, in the book of Amos, I'll give you a few references. Amos chapter 3 and verse 2, it says this. Speaking to the nation of Israel here in the book of Amos, he says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. In the book of Amos, chapter 3, verse 2. You only, you the nation of Israel, you're the only nation that I have known of all the families of the earth. And of course, in that book, he says, Therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities, because they were a privileged people, and God so loved them, and then they rejected his love and sinned against God. Therefore, he says, I will punish you for all your iniquities. So that's one verse that reveals God's love. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 15, let me give this to you. Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 15, it says, Only the Lord hath a delight in thy fathers to love them. Only the Lord hath a delight in thy fathers to love them, and he chose their seed after him, even you above all people as it is this day. God Almighty chose that nation and that people. And he says, Only the Lord hath a delight in thy fathers to love them. Then we find again Moses speaking to them in the 33rd chapter of Deuteronomy, verse 3. And it says this, Yea, he loved the people. Yea, he loved the people. All his saints are in thy hand. And they sat down at thy feet. Everyone shall receive of thy words. And so God announces his love uh, for Uh, His people. Now then, isn't it a terrible thing today? We say, well, that was terrible of Israel of old. After all that God had done for them, after He chose them out of, uh, from among their false gods, after He brought them out of idolatry, after He had delivered them from bondage as they went down into Egypt as a whole nation, and He delivered them out of Egyptian bondage by blood, And by power, he redeemed them, and he went with them through the wilderness journeys. He brought them over into Canaan's land, and they inherited that land of promise in every place the sole of their foot trod. That was their coast and their land that God promised them. And he says, I'm bringing you over into a land that floweth with milk and honey, a land that you have not fought for. In other words, you do not deserve this. It's by the grace of God it was given. And yet they would say, Wherein hast thou loved us? Well, what about people today? Look at you and I as Christians. We know that Jesus Christ came in the fullness of time. And we know that the Bible teaches that He actually uh, suffered for our sins on the cross. The just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. And we know that the announcement of Christ and his coming and God giving him, John 3.16 even, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And we know and recognize the great love that God had for sinful man in sending his only Son to die a sacrifice for our sins and to make atonement for our sins. And yet people today, Christian people, wherein hast thou loved us? We question the love of God and doubt the love of God. And we do not even act as if we believe that he does. Someone says, I want God to prove his love to me. 
God proved His love for you when He sent His Son. Romans chapter 5, I believe it's verse 8, says, But God commendeth, He commendeth His love toward us, in that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. What more could God do to prove His love? He proved it in the greatest way. Would you and I give our own flesh and blood, our own one of our own family, our only begotten Son? God gave His Son. He gave His Son for our salvation. And not because we were good, but because we were sinful and evil. Romans argues in this way. It says, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man uh, one would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. We question God's love today. You know, that's a terrible thing. That's a terrible sin. That's one of the most awful things we can do. After all that God has done is for us to say, God, I don't know that you love me. What would it take for us to, to believe that God loves us? What more could he do to prove his love? Someone expects him to come down and, and uh, in the things of life this day and hour to manifest himself in a miraculous way every time we get in trouble or every time we have problems and just immediately uh, in a miraculous way deliver us out of that. And God does work and help us through our trials. But God's word also tells us that those things that become us are those things that are common to man. And he says he will not suffer us to be tempted above that you're able, but will with the temptation make a way to escape that you may be able to what? Bear it. He doesn't keep you out of it all the time, but He gives you the strength to bear it. He doesn't always miraculously deliver you out of it, but He sees you through it by His grace and His providence. And then we, the Bible says, if God be for us, who can be against us? We ought to be willing to endure a few trials, shouldn't we? We ought to be willing to uh, put up with some sufferings. Jesus suffered and bled and died for us. The Bible says if we suffer with Him, we shall also be reign with Him. So... There's no uh, great, terrible, awful thing when we have to suffer a little bit or when we have to put up with a few uh, of these uh, discomforts along the way. We can thank God that He's given us the strength to endure them. But you know, we want to go to heaven on a bed of roses. We don't want any troubles along the way. I'm just glad that God is here to deliver us out of them when they come and to see us through when times get rough. And if it wasn't for the Lord, we couldn't make it, could we? But He's the one that guides us all the way. And when we have problems, trials, He says, Call upon me in the time of trouble, and I will deliver you. All right, let's look at this. It says, Wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob. And He says, Now hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Now then. It's not said back in the book of Genesis that he hated Esau at the very announcement of the birth of these twins. In other words, that would be predetermining their, their destiny to evil or good. God is sovereign in his choice. He had a right to choose Jacob, all right, didn't he? And God always has a right to do as he pleases. But he, it speaks of after uh, Esau's nature was manifested in his ungodliness and his sin, that God says, Esau have I hated. It's quoted over in the book of Romans, much the same way as you find it here. Never does the Scripture 
uh, represent God as saying before the child was born and had manifested his iniquity, that is, before Esau was born, uh, and manifested his iniquity and proud uh, heart before God and malice that he had, does he say, Esau have I hated? If that were true, God would predetermine some to hell and some to heaven. But God does have an eternal choice. God does choose and God does call people out of sin and out of bondage. But every man that hears the gospel is, in other words, he's not just because he was not that special one that God speaks of as chosen. That doesn't mean he's predetermined to hell. God doesn't predetermine anyone to go to hell. He doesn't do that. The Bible says that hell was made for the devil and his angels, right? Men go there because they reject Christ. Now then, God knows that men are going to reject his only begotten son. God knows all about that. But they have the opportunity, if they would but be quickened by the Spirit of God and, and be convicted of their sins when they hear the gospel preached, to turn to Christ and to receive Christ as Savior by faith. The, the lack of faith, unbelief, is what condemns a sinner to his destiny. The Bible, Jesus says that he came not to condemn the world, but to save the world, that the world through him might be saved. And Jesus says, he that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So he says, Jacob, I, uh, yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness, whereas Edom, the descendants of Esau, verse 4, look at it, whereas Edom saith, We are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, They shall build, but I will throw down. Why? God's judgment. And they shall call them the border of wickedness. Their sins, their wickedness separate them from God. At any time that they repented and turned to God in faith and believed Him and trusted Him, it would have been a different story. And the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever because of their wickedness, it says. Now look at, your, at verse 5. And your eyes shall see and you shall say, The Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. So in this first five verses you see God's love for His people. Now then, I want to pick up with verses 6 through the second chapter, verse 9. In other words, this carries us from this verse, 6, in the first chapter, through the second chapter to verse 9 in the second chapter. And this is the rebuke of the priest. And it's the rebuke is, is for the priest and for all the people, actually. It's, it's not just for the priest only, but it's for all the people. Now notice in verse 6. He says, A son honoreth his father, and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is mine honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear, saith the Lord of hosts unto you? O priest, there you have the priest, that despise my name, and ye say, wherein have we despised thy name? It seems they were always answering back to God's charges. God says, where is my honor? And he says, if I be a master, where is my fear? But he says, you despise my name. And they say, they had not given him honor, they had not given him fear. And they say, wherein have we despised thy name? What does it amount to here? Always arguing with God, as if they know best. They say, wherein have we despised thy name? God says, well, if you want to know, I'll show you. If you really want to know wherein you despise my name, look at it. Verse 7 says, ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar. They were to keep the bread fresh. 
in the tabernacle of old and in the temple. On one side, as you came in, there was a table on one side, and, uh, and on the other side, the seven-branched candlestick. The lamps had to be trimmed. They all replenished day by day and had to be kept perfect in order as far as light, bearing light is concerned. On the other side where the table, it was called a table of shoe bread, S-H-E-W, bread. It was uh, two, it was twelve, there were twelve loaves there, representing the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. The priest's duty was to keep that bread fresh daily. And what did it say? Ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar. And it says, and ye say, wherein have we polluted thee? God knew what they were thinking, what they were saying all the time. In that you say the table of the Lord is contemptible. In other words, by saying, by saying, wherein have we polluted thee? And offering the polluted bread upon the altar, stale bread or that which was not any good, they were as much as saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. See, God's showing them wherein they had not given him respect and honor and wherein they had despised his name, as you find in verse 6. Now look at your Bible in verse 8. And if you offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? They take a blind lamb or calf or whatever it was to offer sacrifice. Blind, is it not evil? And if you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Here's an old, here's a calf that's about to die or one that's got a broken leg that's lame. They say, well, now listen, this won't cost as much. He's going to die anyway or it's not very, he's crippled. It won't do us much good. He can't go, it's, one of the poorest of the flock, we'll just take this one and offer it to God as a sacrifice. God says, offer it now to thy governor. Give it to your governor. Give it to one of your politicians. Give it to one that's over you in human affairs and see if he'll accept it. Will he be pleased with thee or accept thy person, saith the Lord of hosts? <coughs> if you brought that kind of an offering to man to try to gain his honor and respect, Certainly he'd say, well, I don't want that thing. Just keep it yourself. But yet, they were doing God that way. And he says, wherein? They say, wherein? Back in verse 6. O priest that despised my name, and you say, wherein have we despised thy name? They couldn't even see it. They were so blind, they couldn't even see what they were doing. You know, that's a lot, a lot like a lot of folks today. And I've had them get on me for using these kind of illustrations. Giving all the leftovers to God. I'll take all I want. If I've got anything left, I'll give it to God. That's the same thing as just giving him what you don't want, right? That's that's the same thing. That's the same thing. God doesn't say he wants your leftovers. You see, the Lord doesn't need anything to start with. He says, the cattle upon the thousand hills are mine. He says, the earth is mine and the fullness thereof. God says in the Psalms, if I had need of anything, I would not have to ask you. God doesn't have any needs. We we act like God is a beggar sitting up there and begging us to give him some little something. It's honor that we show to God in respect by giving him the tithes and the offerings. We're showing that we believe that God has given us a promise that he will bless us if we will honor him. Jesus said, he that honors me, uh, I will honor him. And he that honors the Father, my Father will honor him. We don't show the Lord honor. How can we expect him to bless us and to honor us. I believe that people ought to give God first in, in our lives and in our uh, offerings or whatever it is. It belongs to Him first. He said, if you offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? If you offer the lame and, and the sick, is it not evil? 
Certainly we know it's evil. God puts the question, is it not evil? Well, man, any man would know that that's the wrong thing to do. Uh, I believe it was, da uh, was it David that said, I will not offer to the Lord that which cost me nothing. In other words, if it's not worth offering, if, it, if there's not some cost, then I certainly wouldn't give it to God. All right, now let's look at this in verse 9. And now I pray you, beseech God that he will be gracious unto us. This hath been by your means. Will he regard your person, saith the Lord of hosts? In other words, go ahead and pray. Under these circumstances, do you think God would regard your person if you start praying and say, Lord, now you do this or that for me? And offering God the worst that you have and not respecting God and not having any honor for God and despising his holy name, showing no fear of the Lord. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Look back in verse uh, 6. He says, where's my honor? Look in verse 6 again. Where's my fear? Uh, in the last part of verse 6. Wherein have we despised thy name? Polluted bread, verse 7. Offering the blind for sacrifice and the lame and all, verse 8. Is it not evil? I believe that we could confess that under those circumstances, we wouldn't expect God to hear and answer our prayers if we were to treat God like that. Now, God does hear and answer our prayers. But just as Israel was separated, you know, Isaiah 59, I believe it is, you'll find it. Let me read it for you. Book of Isaiah, chapter 59. I'll turn to it quickly. You know what separates from God? Verses 1 and 2, he says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither is ear heavy that, he, that it cannot hear. God's ear can still hear. But he says, But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Fellas, got sin, known sin, and fails to confess it. The first thing that God wants to hear is not a prayer for what God will do for us when we're, when we're separated by sin, but is a confession of that sin before him, and then he's ready to hear. See, that's the first thing he wants to hear. That, that we get right. That we get right with God. You know, sometimes if you, you ever had this experience, you'll start to pray, and the first thing, you'll be praying for something, the first thing you know, you say, Lord, you realize that we need to confess sin first. Forgive me my sins. Cleanse my heart. Make me what I ought to be. In other words, I want my fellowship right before God before I even think of asking God for anything, to do anything for me. And when we come with that attitude, uh, then things will be all right. If we come with the attitude of confessing sin, getting it out of the way, then God is uh, certainly, we're in fellowship with God and, he's, and we claim His promises by faith. God says, I will hear and answer your prayers. We say, Lord, I've confessed my sins. You said you'd forgive them and you'd be faithful to do it. And now I want to ask you to help me through this problem, this trial, this need that I have. And God will do it. God will do it. Now then, look at this. But they, in verse 9, And now I pray you, beseech God, that he will be gracious unto us. This hath been by your means. Look. Will he regard your persons, saith the Lord of hosts? Will he regard your persons if you come having all these previous circumstances existing in your heart, offering polluted and doing these kind of works. Now, verse 10. Who is there even among you that would shut the doors for naught? Neither do you kindle fire on mine altar for naught. I have no pleasure in you, saith the Lord of hosts. Neither will I accept an offering at your hand. The Lord says you just as well shut the doors up. You know, 
it's indicated by this verse, some have interpreted meaning that they wanted pay for everything they did. It's not exactly that. At the last part, it indicates the real meaning of the verse is, neither will I accept an offering at your hand. In other words, they just as well shut the doors, and they just as well not kindle the fire, because it wouldn't do any good, because I have no pleasure in you, saith the Lord of hosts, neither will I accept an offering at your hand. You just well forget it under those circumstances what the Lord is saying. I won't accept it. I'm not going to be satisfied with it. Verse 11. For from the rising of the sun, even to the going down thereof, going down of the same, rather, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. And in every place, incense shall be offered unto my name, and a pure offering, for my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. This is a prophecy of the time after Christ comes, and the Gentile nations have been uh, saved, those of the Gentiles that have been saved and turned to God, that God during the millennium is going to reestablish a worship, as far as Israel is concerned, by sacrifice. And in the sense of memorial, they're not going to try to offer sacrifices because the only sacrifice that's been offered in the sense that to redeem them because the great sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ. 